Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Activist Lawyer. This is the first episode of 2023. We had a little break over Christmas. Hope you all had a really nice time and a really nice break. Hi Aoife. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Aoife joins us via Zoom. She's in Dublin at the moment and we're really happy to have Aoife as our first guest on this series. So just by way of introduction, Aoife Kelly Desmond is the Managing Solicitor at the Mercy Law Resource Centre in Dublin. Um, just a bit of background about the Mercy Law Resource Centre. Eva will take us through it anyway. The Mercy Law Resource Centre is a non-profit interest law centre based in Dublin. They provide free legal advice and representation to people who are homeless or at risk of homelessness in relation to social housing and social welfare law. The specialist lawyers work directly with people in housing crisis to support them through legal barriers preventing them from accessing safe and secure housing. They provide legal training and support to organisations working with their client base, such as homeless charities, domestic violence services, social workers and addiction services. They advocate for change in law, policies and attitudes which unduly impact their client group. Aoife, who joins us today, has a previous experience in the corporate world where she advised financial institutions and public bodies on investigations, regulatory matters and complex litigation and disputes, which will, of course, stand her in good stead when it comes to navigating complex housing and social welfare law. Aoife leads Mercy Law Resource Centre's training and support programmes and as Managing Solicitor of MLRC is an active member of Home for Good, which is a coalition of organisations and individuals who believe that constitutional change is fundamental to tackling Ireland's homeless and housing crisis. We'll talk about that a little bit further. And back in July 2022, Aoife spoke on the right to housing, again something that we'll mention, at the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Housing, Local Government and Heritage. Among many other achievements, Aoife is also the chair of the board of directors of Plan International Ireland, an international charity that aims to advance children's rights and promote equality for girls. Aoife's experience of advocacy, frontline experience, passion for social equality and wide ranging legal and regulatory knowledge will really strengthen the work of the MLRC. So we are absolutely delighted to have Aoife with us today. Uh, thanks Sarah for that very um uh, lovely introduction. <laughs> well, look, I'm sure there, there's plenty more to that. And I mean, uh, your work really is something that we'd love to talk about, um, especially, I guess, your journey into law before we get into um, the MLRC's work. And I'm sure, as I said, many people have heard about the work of the organisation. And I mean, what a time to be involved um, in the type of work that you're doing. I'm sure it's it's no, it, it must be very, very difficult. But really, we'll go back a little bit in time, Aoife, to you know, your your law journey, where it all started, and maybe that transition from the corporate world into where you are now. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think like a lot of people uh, who study law, when I went into it, I went into it with really lofty ideas about being a human rights lawyer and changing the world. Um, and then when I was coming to the end of my, my degree, I studied straight law. Um, when I was coming to the end of my degree, I was trying to figure out what on earth you actually do to become a lawyer. Um, and really... At the time, I was looking around at the opportunities. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't really know a huge amount more than that. There just aren't a lot of direct pathways into human rights law, public yeah. interest law. And I think, you know, I'm obviously a bit further into my career now, but I, I don't believe there's been a huge change in that. I think mm -hmm. it's still uh, the case that there's maybe a handful of, of sort of graduate entry type roles into that field. Most of the roles to train as a solicitor are in commercially focused law firms. Um, and for me, the corporate world was just... I mean, to be honest, the most obvious and direct route, I didn't, you know, have 
any huge knowledge of the legal world or connections in it. Yeah. And the corporate firms have graduate programs that you fill out for when you apply and you interview mm-hmm. and you get a, a contract for two and a half years, which was mm-hmm. very appealing to me at 21 when I had no idea <laughs> what the future was going to look like. Um, so that's the very unromantic uh, reason I ended up in corporate law initially. Um but I did actually like it a bit more than, than I thought. And you'd hope that be the case since I didn't stay for 10, 10 years <laughs> after that. 10 years, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I trained in a corporate firm doing public law mm-hmm. litigation mainly and regulatory litigation, um, but mostly from the perspective of the public body or the, the organisation. So not from the individual side, from the other side, uh, which was a really useful grounding and something I do still find very helpful uh, now because you know it is always good to know what your the considerations on the other side of the house are and that was this was where I started um I think like again like a lot of people I, I had a little bit of a, a existential crisis of you know I might have enjoyed the day-to-day work but yeah. I wasn't exactly happy with the the lack of, of purpose in it um so I did try and kind of see if I could fill that gap with yeah. outside things so I, I moved to another firm that did a lot of pro bono work uh, I did a lot of pro bono work I think I was sort of at risk of not being allowed to do any more <laughs> pro bono work um, but um, it was really great to do that and it kind of gives a bit of an insight and I think it's great now that that's way more common um, I think when I first started it was pretty rare yeah. for firms to do substantial pro bono work now it's, it's quite widespread and I think pretty much all of the major firms have a pro bono practice um, and a lot of them now even have trainee rotations in pro bono which is I think fantastic um, but yeah so I, I suppose then I I also looked at trying to get involved in charities outside of work and that's how I got involved with Plan Ireland uh, I joined the board there um, about five and a bit years ago now um, again trying to look at can I keep my day job that I do actually enjoy mm-hmm. but fill in the the gap of, of the kind of existential the crisis satisfaction of the thing. That, yeah yeah absolutely. yeah um and I did it for a few years but eventually it starts to feel pretty obvious that uh you know you're spending you know in corporate law I was in financial regulatory uh investigations at that stage and I was working you know a really really huge amount it was a very very busy team uh when you're working those kind of crazy hours and it's taking up you know three quarters or more of your waking life uh you start to say well that's you know there has to be a point at which you maybe do what you actually care about for the majority of your time, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of looking for something for a while. And uh, again, even at a more senior level, there's not a huge amount of opportunities that come up very often in this kind of in public interest law. Uh, and when I saw the role come up in Mercy Law, I just jumped at it straight away. Um, and that, uh, yeah, and that was just all coming up on two years now in Mercy. Two years. Oh, and I, I, yeah. And uh, it hasn't been, you know, it's been a difficult time. It's a challenging role, yeah. it's a challenging time to be working in homelessness. Mm-hmm. But uh, I definitely haven't haven't looked back yeah. at all. This is a really poignant um, point to talk about because it's what a lot of our listeners actually contact us about. Confirming what you've just said, that there are very little opportunities. And even when they're in college and, you know, the firms that come around to talk about working in law are usually corporate firms. Mm-hmm. And even recently I saw an advert for, um, you know, somebody visiting, a, a, sorry, a, a, a talk in a local a university about alternative careers in law. 
and there was nothing there that covered even public law, human rights law at all. So I think you're right that things haven't really changed, you know, drastically from, you know, 10, 15 years ago, especially, you know, when I was trying to get into that area of law. So I think um, that's a great point. But then to transition from the corporate world and that very kind of, um, I suppose, heavy workload of financial regulatory affairs, you know, was it a big transition to start working straight away in in your current role or, you know, did you, were your skills, obviously your skills are transferable, that's a, a silly a silly point, but how did that work or how did you, you know, were there any challenges for you? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's something that kind of looking back at it now, you know, there was points when I was younger where I was really eager to move and I looked at moving into, you know, really wanting to get in, out of corporate world and I now actually looking back at it, it was the right time for me to do it when I did and I think I would have found it a lot more difficult early on and I know it when people uh, you know people ask me about my career and you know people who come in working with us like interns and things like that like I it's not for everyone to work yeah. in corporate law at all but I've, I've never regretted training in corporate yeah. and working there because like it is really good training like it you is. get excellent training and there's also economic aspects to it you know mm-hmm. the charity sector is not the greatest and it is 100%. good maybe if you have student loans and things like that to have a few years of of a better salary before you kind of get set up so I mean I think there's a lot of benefit in working yeah. in the corporate world but for me um I had enough experience at that point of running kind of cases with the legal side of it and I think what also really really stood to me was the voluntary work on the charity board because without that I think I would have found the role a lot harder because my own role in Mercy Law is the managing solicitor is, you know, it's the leadership role. It's the most senior role in the organisation. So I'm responsible for the governance, reporting to the board, all of our compliance, all of that. Um, and I think I would have found that really overwhelming if I didn't have at least some idea of how it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the legal work is transferable. You know, there's yeah. an upskilling and there's yeah. a getting used to dealing with a very different client profile. But again, having had some experience of dealing one-on-one with vulnerable clients through pro bono work helped, sure. um, which is why I always really say to people, if you think you want to do this, you need to start doing everything you can to get that experience. Because um, I think if I did this when I was, you know, 26 and had never done anything in that area and I jumped into a role like this, I think I would have found it, yeah. you know, yeah. really, really difficult. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, look, we mentioned a little bit in, in the introduction there about um, Mercy Law Resource Centre. I'm familiar with the work. I, I worked locally just down in, in Smithfield in the Women's Council and I know quite a few of the staff who've, who've been there over the years and I'm, this, the work is just uh, amazing. And as you said, you know, you've entered the organisation at a really, really challenging time. Um, but can you just give us um, a little bit of um, an insight into the organisation and maybe, you know, um, the Home for Good uh, coalition as well? Absolutely. So uh, Mercy Law is, um, we have six permanent staff and a bunch of volunteers, which are just really fantastic and give us a lot of support. So there's three solicitors, including myself, uh, and the other two solicitors are fully just doing the legal work and the policy work. So they're the real uh, kind of part of, of the work that mm-hmm. we do. Um, Mercy was set up in 2009, and at the time it was set up because of the extent of the housing crisis and the fact that there was a gap in legal services for people facing homelessness. And at the time we were set up, I think there was a, a view that we may only be needed for a short period of time. And it's, it's quite difficult now looking back that I think in 2009, it's hard to get exact figures from that time. But the number of people in homelessness in Ireland officially was, you know, maybe 3,000 or so. Yeah. Whereas now the last figure is from November, which is the most recent, it's 11,542. Oh. Um, 
and you know that's the highest we've ever had it's even higher by over about a thousand more than the last peak which was just before the pandemic um, because there was a drop off in the pandemic for various reasons so it really has never been as bad as it is and we don't have the next set of figures we don't know what it's like yeah. in January yet officially but I mean I can't imagine it's any better because I think the thing that's really just causing chaos at the moment and we're seeing it in our own work mm-hmm. as well is that people are going into emergency homeless accommodation and they can't get back out yeah. because there's nowhere to go, nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're just backing backing up and backing up um, so it, it is a really challenging time to be in Mercy but um, it's also the kind of ultimate the core of what we do and our work really splits between social housing and homelessness work and maybe during the pandemic the majority of our work was around social housing so that's maybe people who are having issues being approved for social housing or you know getting their medical needs recognized or you know all the sorts of issues people can have um but the homelessness side of things reduced quite a lot because the the government was I suppose providing homeless accommodation more easily there was an eviction ban during COVID as well that kept the numbers down um but last year it just completely flipped and um I think like in the terms of the types of issues people are coming to us with instead of it being as much issues of people who maybe are accommodated but their accommodation is really unsuitable and they have issues like that which are very serious but they are ultimately you know they have a level of security that they are somewhere at the moment and they have some safety now it's a huge shift towards people who are at that really basic level of having absolutely nowhere to go and being refused access to basic emergency homeless accommodation which is you know really the lowest standard and I think last year the proportion of our queries that dealt with that really basic refusal of accommodation went up about 200% on the previous year um and that's that's really concerning because mm-hmm. that's you know that that is um just you know yeah, the, the it's really always the highest priority work for us yeah. um and with that obviously you're providing one to one legal representation on very what i'd imagine mm-hmm. are quite complex issues as well mm-hmm. um in terms of the advocacy then and feeding into you know the government and um you know perhaps you know looking for a solution to the crisis itself how involved is the organization on that level yeah so we we always try and make sure that we're bringing what we see in our casework forward on a more coherent policy level because you know for an ind- or individual solicitors working with individual clients you want to get the best result for that client but ultimately you're just sort of you know putting a plaster over a wound yeah. if you're only helping the individual cases so we've always had a policy focus and certainly you know we would do quite a bit of, of lobbying to government and you know writing submissions to government both ourselves and as part of of kind of groups with other organisations and we have been doing a lot of that particularly around the the shortage of homeless accommodation and those issues in the last few months Um, so on individual issues we would lobby as well as try and progress things through individual cases Um, and then we also are kind of at a much more macro level involved with Home for Good which is the campaign for a right to housing Um, so that's sort of taking it to the the highest level of policy really of trying to change the constitution Um, but then we also be involved with you know more basic lobbying for you know changes to regulations and just changes in policy and practice as well. Uh And Aoife are you so would your clients be primarily Dublin based or is it nationwide? No so um Initially, we would have been a Dublin-based organisation, but homelessness and homelessness was more of a Dublin problem. I know that might sound a bit ridiculous, but you know, ten years ago, 
the majority of homelessness and I suppose numerically still is in Dublin but it's become a much more widespread countrywide issue so we as an organisation have spread out nationally so we now take clients nationally and again the proportion of our cases coming from outside Dublin has gone up massively um, I think again the pandemic fed into that in a more positive sense that yeah. because we moved to remote services we were able to deal with people down the country mm-hmm. and we were able to say to people no you don't have to get five hours of buses up from West Cork to come up to Dublin to meet us we can actually talk to you over the phone and just do it that way so we've been able to expand our reach, but um, no, it absolutely is not a, just a Dublin issue. I mean, I, I would say uh, I did a little piece of research uh, last year on our numbers and we there isn't a county in Ireland that we haven't taken okay. a case, had to, taken sure. a client from. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Although obviously it, it is the urban areas that yeah. have the volume. Mm-hmm. Well, you spoke about numbers there, which are, you know, truly devastating to hear. Um, but just in terms of groups, are there any groups that are more, you know, disproportionately affected by homelessness? Who are you seeing more, you know, in terms of um, pe- vulnerable people coming before the organisation? Yeah, so I, I think that there's two strands to that. Um, definitely with how much the housing crisis has deteriorated, the profile of people entering homelessness has definitely widened. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of people coming to us who are it's the first time they're becoming homeless they've never thought they would face this you know you're talking about working families who have just had their housing situation deteriorate and they're not what you would see as the typical profile of homelessness so there, there is no one type of person who becomes homeless in Ireland today mm-hmm. um, but certainly in terms of that very <clears throat> like um, destitution level homelessness and where people are struggling to even access beds and hostels it does definitely disproportionately affect minority groups and this was the, the main minority groups that we would see being really affected are the Roma community and the traveller community and then also um, migrants and particularly maybe newly arrived migrants to Ireland so people who maybe don't have <clears throat> very well established legal status yet or who have their legal status but they haven't been here that long and they can face all sorts of barriers being put up in front of them by by public services when they're trying to get housing or even homeless accommodation um so you know that that is something that you know a a disproportionate number of our clients would come from minority groups versus you know the population definitely and i wonder the i know the government recently has announced that a lot of the contracts with um private accommodation providers for um asylum seekers are now coming to an end so surely that just adds to an already ongoing crisis particularly with ukraine refugees who arrived from early last year has there been any movement in that in terms of what they're going to do for accommodation and when that ends yeah i mean it's it's I mean, I, I don't really have a word for it other than, than frightening, really. You know, when I was listening to the, uh, the radio yesterday evening and they had uh, various people on talking about this crisis and what they're planning to do on the refugee side. And, I mean, they're saying they're doing everything they can, but they, they're also the fact that the ministers come out publicly saying there are going to be asylum seekers homeless in the next couple of weeks. Is, I mean, that's not something they would have admitted. It used to happen every now and then, but they wouldn't, yeah. you know, openly admit it's going to happen and that in itself shows I think the scale of the crisis and that it has a knock-on impact for for everybody in the system and definitely people who are in asylum seeking have so much vulnerability and and there's so many legal obligations that the government has around reception conditions specifically for asylum seekers but what we find concerning and something that our work has to deal with um, quite a bit is people and sometimes it's people who've actually finished the asylum process and they have legal status mm-hmm. to be here. And other times when people are still in the process, that 
uh, there's a complete um, siloing of yeah. who is responsible for that. So you have, uh, when you approach homeless services, you know, the regular homeless services and say, you know, we have this person and they're homeless and why are you not accommodating them? They mm-hmm. clearly meet the legal definition of homeless. They just go, oh, asylum seeker, that's the responsibility of IPAS. Uh-huh. It's nothing to do yeah. with us. Um, and that's something that we've dealt with. Yeah. You know, it comes sure. up every now and then, but yeah. I can only, we're anticipating it exploding, yeah. to I be mean, honest. That's been um, going on for years. And as we know, direct mm-hmm. provision is is still there, um, which is very concerning given that a number of years ago, you know, there was a huge commitment um, for change around that. Um, another issue that we're seeing here is um, the lack of available housing for women who need refuge in domestic violence um, cases. I mean, that's uh, presenting a, a huge crisis. What are you experiencing in terms of that? I know numbers went up after the pandemic because of um, people staying at home, etc., and various issues that feed into you know the reason behind uh, domestic violence. Have you seen anything in terms of numbers around homelessness there? Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, you know, people um, who are coming from a domestic violence situation have, have always been part of our client work, but we've definitely seen um, quite a lot of issues with people who are maybe have gotten into a refuge, but then the refuges are only supposed to keep yeah. people for a certain amount of time and they're so oversubscribed, they need to move people on. And then we find people are getting to the end of that stay and then they're engaging with the local authority and the local authority is not dealing with them. So you have women who are you know obviously very vulnerable and they're on their last day the refuges literally cannot keep them because they've someone waiting outside who needs that space um and the local authority still has not made any arrangements for their accommodation um and we've had clients who are being told to go back to accommodation where the abuser lives down the street and has already broken into the property numerous times and the the local authority is saying oh we'll just go back there till we figure it out when they literally can't and there's the Garda report saying this person cannot go back to this property Um, and I think what I sometimes find frustrating with those kinds of cases is that when you intervene it usually gets sorted out and it might sound a bit counterintuitive but I I get most frustrated by the cases where a single email from us sorts it out (laughs) because to me that says you knew that this wasn't a legal or rational decision and you knew that you hadn't allowed to stand on, but you just decided to refuse it anyway. Absolutely. You know, the thorny legal issues, I can understand, but those (laughs) ones really, uh, really get get, get my back up. Um, Yeah, it's great that um, you're able to provide that backup, you know, in those individual cases, but also feed into the the greater narrative because this is such a crisis. And I mean, there's not a day goes by that you don't don't hear about it. But just in terms of the organisation, and the work that you feed into. Has there been any kind of standout moments for you since you've been there in your career that you're aware of with the organisation? Yeah, so um, this isn't about a specific case, but just to kind of go back to the Home for Good and the Right to Housing campaign. So Mercy Law, as you know, being the only law centre that exclusively focuses on housing and homelessness, this has always been a, hu- a huge um, issue of ours. And it's, I think pretty much since the outset that Mercy Law have been ca- campaigning for a right to housing to be recognised and we were a founding member of Home for Good. But I think even when I joined Mercy Law, um, I think I would have been interviewing for Mercy Law around November 2020, I think. I forgot my numbers right. Um, And I remember talking to, you know, family members and friends telling them I was going for this and saying, oh, they're doing this right to housing thing. And, you know, very, you know, educated, socially, politically aware friends of mine were going, well, that's never going to happen. Like a right to housing, come on. Like who who thinks the Irish government would ever put that forward? And I was kind of going, 
yeah, probably. Yeah, sounds nice, but is it likely? And when you look now, you know, we have a position where almost all the government parties have publicly supported a right to housing. They've committed to hold a referendum. Like, there's a road to be travelled in terms yeah. of what that amendment is and whether it's, you know, how it goes. But the fact that that's now gone from yeah. a sort of a fringe hope to an absolutely something that is almost certainly going to happen, uh-huh. I don't think that can be underestimated. And I think yeah. a lot of the discourse around the right to housing at the moment is you know, the odd op-ed popping up in different newspapers mm-hmm. and they tend to be taking the contrary view and saying, what's the point? Does it matter? Who cares? Mm-hmm. The real issue is there's not enough houses. And I'm wondering, I don't know if there is, but is there a, a timeline on that or is there any, when is that going to um, well, the, from what I've seen, my understanding is there should be something, at least some update on it happening this year. And I think the hope mm. is very much that it will happen yeah. towards the end of this yeah, year. Brilliant. But I think that still does remain to be seen to an yeah, extent. Yeah. Um, I know that the Housing Commission that's been set up by government are working away on this and we're all just waiting to see what they come out with. But certainly what's been said in, in publicly on it has been positive. Um, but yeah, and I, I think it's, you know, sometimes it's... it's um, hard to articulate you know the importance of something that can seem kind of a bit esoteric like yeah. a constitutional right but it's it's it will be so seismic in terms of changing mm-hmm. the way that we look at housing and it not just being something that's looked at as an economic um an economic matter but that is actually looked at as a human rights matter and that Absolutely. the state actually has a role in protecting the rights of its people and not just protecting um economic interests which is how it currently is set up 100 mm-hmm. percent um, yeah and that, to me, if that if that can get over the line in the right way, I think that is yeah. going to be definitely the biggest achievement Fantastic. coming out of it. And we're not the only people involved no, in this, but I'm we've sure, very much been. Yeah, um, yeah, it's so necessary, isn't it? So that's exciting to see that move along, hopefully. And I hope you get um, support around that. I'm sure you will. The work that you deal with, I, I mean, whether it's representation, the one-to-one cases, research and complex issues. I mean, you yourself, you know, you've, heavy workload I I would say how do you strike a balance between work and your day-to-day job I guess and and your everyday life or or do you (laughs) have you have you found the secret yet (laughs) um no you know I think yeah it's definitely something I struggle with because um I've always you know I've always worked hard I'm always happy working hard but um in this role like I'm you know I'm the person who's responsible for how much work I do and I have to be the person responsible for not doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's nobody coming over my shoulder saying, okay, you need to go home now, take a break. Yeah. So I have to manage that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think people who probably go into law generally and people who work in commercial law definitely have a tendency if things are going out of control to go, okay, the answer is I'm just going to work yeah. constantly <laughs> until this is fixed. Um, and I've had to definitely unlearn that in mm-hmm. the sense of, Unfortunately, there's always things happening that are really urgent and seem really important and are really important and are can seem like a crisis, I guess. Um, but you can't just be in crisis mode all the time. And it's, it's taken me quite a while to kind of accept that, that, you know, I, I can't be in firefighting mode constantly and that we do have to learn how to prioritise what is truly urgent and where something is very important, but perhaps it can wait to maybe find ways to explain that to people and to do what you can to support them but to accept it's it's not doing the best for the organization or the client it's the solicitor it's falling over because they've been working till 12 o'clock every night so Mm -hmm. we we try very hard to have a good work-life balance in mercy and I I think 
I think we do it mostly pretty well. I think I'm the, the person who's probably guilty of not always doing it. But um, yeah, it's, it's so important. I think all of our guests, because they work with whether it's working with you know vulnerable clients, and most of them are, and you know also hearing traumatizing stories a lot as well. Mm-hmm. You know they really take that work on, and it's a question we're just I suppose in modern day life as well. It's important. I think your your point is very valid that if you don't you know have that element of you know looking after yourself and, and minding yourself, I guess it will affect your work um, more so more than you think. So that's really great advice. And and just on advice, uh, you've a really interesting journey there from the corporate world um, into where you are now. What advice would you have for anybody who is perhaps, I suppose, working in corporate law in a more commercial setting and would think, well, look, I'd like to um, go into human rights. You touched on it a little bit, but just what specific advice would you have for anybody who wanted to follow your footsteps, Aoife? Um, yeah, so I guess the... The main thing I would say, and this is kind of advice I give anyone who's struggling with their career, but particularly if you're trying to look at moving into a different area, is just do as much as you can that opens opportunities. And like you do different things that you mightn't really be able to see what at the end of it is this going to get me. But if, if an opportunity presents itself where you find an opportunity that is adjacent or in the area you're interested in, just go for it. You know, when I when I joined the board of plan, I had no idea where it was going to go you know what I mean I just knew oh I really like want to work in charity someday I'm I'm now at a level of my career you know I'm appealing as a board member to a charity so I'm just going to go for it and see what happens and you know if you told me then that I'd be you know the chairperson five years later I would have already said you were mad um (laughs) and that I mean the amount I, I can't emphasize enough how much that role has benefited me in a role now where I report directly to the board and I'm responsible for charitable governance I didn't need to do a diploma in charities governance because I have had five years experience of actually doing it on the ground as well as a legal experience so like I think it's just getting involved in things that Mm -hmm. are are interesting and if you see things coming up just just go for them you know that there's there's so much voluntary work available in the charity and non-profit sector because of the financial constraints that we all have with our budgets so like just put yourself forward for things you know um and definitely, if you're a corporate solicitor, I mean, if your firm doesn't do pro bono work, there's things you can do yourself, yeah. like volunteering for FLAC or different uh-huh. organizations. But also, if you're in a big firm, they should be doing pro bono work. Doing, and if yeah. they're still not today, <laughs> get on be to advocating them. to do it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's brilliant. And we definitely see the benefits of pro bono work especially within I, I know there's call out now for people to get involved in um, immigration specifically mm-hmm. but it was wonderful to see the amount of lawyers get together around Ukraine and yeah. although I mean to find an immigration lawyer is incredibly difficult now in Northern Ireland there's a massive crisis here and you know in other parts of the UK and um, that they really need to rely on, rely on people with um, a legal background in general to help pull those cases through but I think that um, should be played out across the board and it obviously worked as a model um, so the importance was really seen there but just I suppose a question that we ask all of our guests but I think this is really really relevant to you and to your organisation because you see it in action is about the relationship between activism and the law and your organisation just on what you said really encompasses the two but how important is it do you think that you know um, those two things two elements work alongside each other to make change or do they well are they effective in terms of making change in society 
Yeah, no, I, I absolutely do believe in the in the power of activism, and I I believe in the power of the law to make change, hundred percent. And I think you know, um, for us, we obviously very much focus on the legal side, and it's um, you know, we can do so much with the legal side, but then we very much need other organisations and other individuals who are maybe not constrained by the legal framework to do that more that activism. And I think those things have to go hand in hand, and you know, I think. For a lot of people who come to us, you know, they might come to us with a particular issue, but it's rarely the first issue that they've had with a public service. They might have been struggling with trying to get supports and trying to get help for years and being really like mistreated a lot of the time and given a complete lack of respect and really kind of diminished in their dealings with public services, trying to access housing and trying to access supports. And like, I you just I cannot overestimate the power that it has for people when you can say to them it's not just that you've been treated unfairly, but you have, and it's actually unlawful. And here is what we're going to actually do for you because what has been done to you is not correct. And like I, that has such a power for people when they realize they're actually, this, there is something in our system that is actually on their side and that they are in the right. I think that it means an awful lot to people to know that. And it also, you know, in some ways, it's the most powerful thing you can do if someone's really entrenched in a really difficult situation. If there's, If you can get the law to say actually this person has to be given this and you have to do this and it's unlawful and you can get that result you know on an individual level that's as powerful as it can be yeah. um i know that the law can have is very important for change generally and like strategic litigation and cases can be really important but for an, on an individual level the law is, is the most powerful thing i think mm-hmm. as far as i'm concerned for individual cases that gets stuck in those issues and then the activism has to come together with the law for making kind of broader change is kind of how I, I would look at it. Yeah, yeah, um, both together. Um, well, look, I mean, the work that uh, the Mercy Law Resource Centre does is vital and necessary. I'm just overwhelmed by, you know, just guests like yourself that come on and uh, demonstrate the, the fundamental work that they're doing to make change. And especially with your organisation working through such a, a crisis at the moment, I really um, wish you and, and the organisation all the best. And we really look forward here at Activist Lawyer to following, um, you know, the year ahead and any changes uh, that occur around your work. And we'd love to have you back on at some point, Aoife, to discuss all of that but thank you so much for joining me today it's been fantastic to have you here thanks Sarah thanks for having me thank you everyone for joining us again we really appreciate your support we would also say if you're enjoying the podcast we would love if you could share it like it and maybe give us a review we're really hoping to get our listenership up and really expand for 2023 please also have a look at our website activistlawyer.com where you will be able to find all sorts of lovely activist lawyer merchandise so check that out and look forward to chatting soon bye this podcast was recorded in granite podcast studio Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.